Colonial Woods Missionary Church presents Keys to Confident Living. Amen. You may be seated. Great to see you this morning. I'm so glad you're here. Can I say that again? Good morning. Great. Hey, would you turn to someone near you, right, and just say, I am so excited to sit this first week of 2020 with you. Can you just do that? Just tell them how honored you are. In 2020. That's the first time you probably said that. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'd invite you to take them and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 30. 1 Samuel chapter 30. 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. If you find one of those, you're in the ballpark. In my Bible, it's page 248. So if you're somewhere around there, you'll probably get close to it over the next few minutes. And we're going to headquarter in 1 Samuel chapter 30 this morning as we embark not only on a new series but on a new year. And, uh, I, you know, I, I don't know how many of you have ever had this experience before, ever gone on a trip, maybe to a beautiful place or done a missions trip, and you came back and you had a, it, was, it was impossible for you to communicate how beautiful it was or what happened on that trip. Anybody ever had that happen before? Um, I've had it happen anytime I go on a missions trip. I come back and I'm so frustrated because I can't communicate what really took place. I can share events, but I can't really share what really happened. Um, first time I, I was uh, doing a horseback hunt in Wyoming, and it was just outside of, of uh, Yellowstone National Park. And we, were, we went up and um, it started to snow. And so if you can imagine... The first time, first time I've ever been in those mountains, I think in the mountains period, and I'm on a horseback, and, I, and the snow's falling early morning, and it's, I, I was just in awe. I was in awe of the beauty and just the wonderment of it, and I started taking video on my horseback as I was trying to hold on. I was, I was getting used. It had been like 15 years since I've been on a horse, and I was like, okay, getting used to this, and I was taking video, and I was doing like the, you know, uh, you know, I can't believe I'm on this hunt, that kind of thing, you know. And I was taking pictures, and, and, and after about the first day, I just quit taking pictures. Because it, I'd look at the picture, and no way did the picture translate into the beauty that I was seeing. And so I just decided I'm going to quit trying to take pictures, and I'm just going to enjoy this. And if you weren't here, you just don't get it. I was telling the team this morning how when I, the Lord speaks to me in my own life, Sometimes it's that way. I, I get frustrated because I feel like the Lord's put something on my heart and it's impossible for me to really put it into words. And this morning is a little bit of that story. Uh, I'm not one really for themes, uh, at least not for the whole year. I, I do a lot of themes and series. Uh, and I don't have any, I have no problem with the churches that do that. Um, they're very gifted. The Lord just gives them a theme for the year and that becomes their theme for the year. Um, I realize you probably got to have a theme for a conference or a camp, you know. But I, my, my problem is I always feel like when I do it, it's, it's artificial. It's like I'm creating it. But I've noticed over the last three years how the Lord has just put something on my heart that not only carried over in my life, but I really felt was a word for the church. And in 2018, it really began on January the 1st. And I, I thought I was going to read through the entire Bible that year. And I open up the Bible to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And I simply read the words, in the beginning, God created. And it was like the Spirit of God just pounded me. And I couldn't get off 
of just that concept that God is the God who creates. He pushes back the darkness. He brings light to dark places. He gives purpose to the meaningless. And he's able to create out of nothing uh, something that is powerful. And so for the whole year, that, that really was the verse I kept coming back to. Anytime I got a chance to preach it, I, I would share it. Um, I, I spoke at a couple of different churches, and anytime I got a chance, I just simply shared it because it was just burning on my heart. Last year, if there was a concept that burned on my heart, it was just simply what God wants to do in prayer, and we named it Awakening Prayer, and Corey Jones was with us in February and early March, and I just felt like that set the tone for the whole year opening up new opportunities of prayer and just calling people to prayer and, and praying for healing, praying for God's intervention, pockets of prayer throughout the church, and then our Wednesday night awakening prayer. I kind of feel like that was just the theme. And, and if there's a theme that I feel like God is putting on my heart this year, it's just simply the, the word reclaim. It's taking back what the enemy has stolen. And I'm, I'm, I feel completely inadequate to be able to communicate to you this morning what, what's brewing inside of me. But I don't think it's just for me. I really feel like it's God's word for so many today. A few years ago, in fact, it's been probably seven or eight years ago. I, I can't actually remember exactly when it was. Um, I came in to the church on a weekend, and one of our custodial team uh, came up to me and uh, actually had placed on my desk uh, a Rolex watch. And uh, I asked about it. I said, hey, where did this come from? It was a nice watch and really kind of cool looking. And, and uh, I'm not sure. I, maybe I've seen a Rolex before, but I don't remember ever seeing a Rolex. I know this. Never owned one before. And so I, I was kind of asking questions about it. And he said that they found it in the men's room. And it was laying right next to the sink. And it, obviously what had happened is somebody took it off in order to wash their hands never bothered to pick it back up and, and they left. And we think it might have been during a wedding that we were hosting here. And so um, it, it's, we, we don't put that kind of thing in our lost and found. That's not, we don't just throw it in a box and say, hey, help yourself. And so every once in a while we'll find jewelry, keys, phones, all that kind of stuff. And what we do is we hold on to it and we wait for someone to call us. And in the case of this particular one, Nobody claimed it. And so I'm thinking, well, let's put a note in the bulletin. But I, I didn't want to say, hey, we've got to roll if you uh, lost it. And it's not that I don't trust you. <laughs> I just don't trust the person you're sitting next to. And so I, I thought, I, I don't want to give too much information away. And so um, I just simply said, we found a very nice men's watch if you have misplaced one, please contact our office. And all I was going to do is say, hey, what did you lose? And they were going to tell me. I figured they could just, you know, describe it a little bit. And then they could just have it. And that, that, that was in the bulletin. Some of you remember, that was in the bulletin. I'll bet you six months. Nobody claimed. I, I, okay, it's not like you lost some M&Ms. You know, you didn't misplace. I mean, it's a Rolex. And so I kept it in my office drawer, my top drawer, really safe place. Um, I just kept it there for months expecting someone to call. And I, probably a month, uh, 14 week or months, uh, 14 months later, I'm sorry, not a month, a year, 14 months later, um, I got the bright idea that it's kind of dumb for this thing just to sit here. Nobody's called us. 
I should probably sell it and, and take the money, put it in the offering or something like that. Or I was going to have it appraised. And then if it's appraised, then if it's in the ballpark of what I could afford, I might, I might buy it. I never owned a Rolex. It'd be kind of cool. And, um, and I thought, I remembered. Oh, I watched Pawn Stars. And on Pawn Stars, there's actually a serial number inside of uh, Rolex watches that tell you who it belongs to. Like if, if, if it was bought from a dealer, it would be registered to somebody. I thought, well, that's what we should do. Let's figure out who this thing belongs to. So I, I got a hold of a local jeweler and I just said, um, hey, I, I got this Rolex, told him the whole story. And he said, well, pastor, why don't you bring it in? And he said, um, you're right. There should be a way to follow up maybe who that belongs to. But if you... Um, why don't we just figure out if it's real first? And I said, oh, okay. Well, so I brought it in and he looked at it and he said, I'm just going to tell you, it's, it's more than likely a fake. They're all fake. And he looked at it and he goes, wow, that's a really nice watch. You know, if I didn't know that was fake, I would say that that's real. He said, I, but they got, it's got to be fake. They're all fake. He said, but that's a really nice watch. You know what? I, we go, let's wait for my expert to come in. My expert will dig into the watch. He'll go inside. As soon as he opens it up, he'll be able to tell whether or not that's a real Rolex watch. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to guess it's, it's fake because they're all fake. And so I was going out of the country. I was actually going to Africa. And I was sitting in the airport in Atlanta, Georgia, and I get a phone call from him. And he says, hey, pastor, um, I, I got some news on that watch. And I'm thinking, oh, good. I, that's cool to know. And he said, Pastor, I'm going to tell you, that is a very nice fake watch. <laughs> but it is a fake. He said, but it's a nice fake. Um, he said, that's probably a, you know, that's probably a $200 fake watch. Said, that's really a nice watch. He said, I thought it probably was fake, but I wasn't sure. And, but he said, but yeah, he said, you know, you know, just do whatever you're going to do with it. There it is. Seriously, I just pulled it out. I, I'm still sitting in a drawer. I'm just waiting for somebody to come. By the way, if you come up to me and say, yeah, I lost a really nice Rolex watch, you're going to have to tell me what the inscription on the back says now. Doesn't say anything. Yeah, that's all right. And I don't care whether it's fake or not. It just struck me, why would a person not take back something that's theirs? I mean, write, just kind of write it off. It, it struck me that so many of us, we just kind of write off what I believe the Lord says is ours. And we don't claim what the enemy has really stolen from us. And some of you, as soon as I say that, you totally get the idea that there's some things in your life that you once embraced that it feels like they've been stolen. First Samuel chapter 30, it's a story that begins 15 chapters before the story begins. It's David. And the story begins 13 years earlier with, with God's anointing leaving King Saul. And in chapter 15, a, a prophet by the name of Samuel going to the family of Jesse, being called of God to anoint David, a 17-year-old kid, to be the next king of Israel. By the way, we learn from Scripture that David is 30 years of old when he actually becomes king. 
So for 13 years, he walks under the anointing of God and the favor of God, but not yet having laid a hold of that which God has for him. If you've ever wondered whether you can be anointed of God, called of God, and even have the favor of God and still feel like you're waiting, look at the life of David. Because he did it for 13 years. And so immediately after his anointing, he kind of comes on the national stage for what many of you, most of you will know David by, and that is that he killed a giant by the name of Goliath, who is a Philistine. He's the Philistine hero. And he takes him on, this guy with sword, armor, and a mighty warrior, nine plus feet tall. This 17-year-old kid takes him on with a sling and some stones. And immediately upon defeating Goliath, he becomes a national hero. And he becomes elevated into warrior status. And he becomes one of the mightiest warriors, if not the mightiest warrior in all of Israel, And the people began to celebrate him, and Saul the king immediately begins to become jealous. And so in his jealous rage, he figures, I've got to somehow make this guy loyal to me, although he already was. I'm going to bring him into my family as my son-in-law. And so he gives him his daughter, and David becomes part of the household of Saul, And almost immediately for the next 12 years, there's a back and forth of where Saul just is jealous of David, embraces David, tries to destroy David, repents of that, and brings him back in again. And it's an on again, off again. And by the way, it was never David who was instigating the divide. It was always Saul and this internal demons that he faced as he dealt with his own jealousy and insecurity. David hides in multiple caves. Saul comes into his area. David, I think the Lord was giving David the ability to take Saul's life, and yet David would never harm the anointed of the Lord. He always saw the enemy. He always saw Saul as the anointed of God. Saul would repent of what he had felt toward David. They would be restored again, and then rage would come up in him again, and he'd try to kill him again. It all comes to a head in chapter 28. And in Samuel 28, David finally comes to the conclusion, either I'm going to kill him or this guy's going to kill me. And I'm not willing to kill him. And I don't want him to kill me. And so the best thing for me to do is to just simply remove myself from the situation. Some of you know what I'm talking about. The best thing for me to do is to remove myself from this situation and I'm going to hide in the most unlikely place anyone would ever think that I'm going to hide. He goes to the land of the Philistines. And he hides in a country town called Ziklag. And he becomes becomes one of the favored individuals to the king of the Philistines whom he had destroyed their hero 13 years earlier. 
In fact, so much so as David and his 600 men who went with him and their families, so somewhere around 2,500 people that became kind of this little, this little village, they even offered to fight alongside of the king, the Philistines, as they took on Israel. But the Philistine commanders said, no, we don't trust David. We think David's just trying to get in good with his old king, and so we want you to send him back. And so David now is taking his men and leading them back home to their little country village of Ziklag in the nation of the Philistines. And that's where our story picks up in chapter 30. Here's what it says. David and his men reached Ziklag. On the third day, now the Amalekites had raided in the Gev and Ziklag. And they attacked Ziklag and they burned it. And they had taken captive the women and all who were in it, young and old. And they killed none of them, but they carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire. And their wives and their sons and their daughters were all taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured. Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed because the men were talking about stoning him. Each one was bitter in his spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord and asked, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he asked, or he answered, and you will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. So David and the 600 men, along with him in the Besor ravine, where, and where some stayed behind. For 200 men were too exhausted to cross the ravine, but David and 400 men continued the pursuit. Let me put a final note on this story. Verse 17, David caught up with them, and David fought the Amalekites from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. And David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else that had been taken. David brought everything back. And as I read this story, the Lord just began to kind of light this thing in my heart because I... I, I some of us know what it's like, that whether our attention has been in, in good places, in ministry, maybe we've been hard at work, maybe we've been doing and giving attention to one of our kids at the exclusion of one of our other children, maybe we've given attention to an ailing parent or whatever it is. But while our attention has been here, the enemy snuck in and stole something that belonged to us. And the enemy had no claim to it. It did not belong to him, but he stole it. And it's interesting how they responded when they found out what had happened. 
The first thing they did is they wept and they mourned. In fact, it says in verse 3 to 5 that they wept until they had no strength left to weep. And I don't know if you've ever cried so much that you don't have any more tears. i got to be honest, it's happened very seldom in my life. But there have been a few times in my life in a time of loss where I was just simply so broken and I just simply was at a point where I had just cried before the Lord, wept with others. I had done everything I knew how to do and I was just simply exhausted. And if you've ever been at the point where you, you cried until you couldn't cry anymore and there was no more tears in the little tear producers in your, your tear ducts, you understand a little bit of what these men felt like. Because they had lost something that was so dear to them. They'd lost their families. They, they had lost their families. They'd lost their possessions. They'd lost everything. So they wept and they mourned. And what's interesting, what they did next, is they looked for somebody to blame for it. In fact, you'll notice that the men immediately began to turn toward David, the guy that they had loved, the guy that they had followed, the guy that had always proven to be a faithful leader, but it's just the way it is. When you go through a loss, when you've lost something, you're always looking for somebody to blame for it. You, why? Because you're always trying to make sense of something that seems senseless. Now, I've worked with a number of families that have gone through infidelity. And one of the things, whether it be a husband or a wife who's been the victim of infidelity, one of the things they're constantly asking is, is why? Why? Why did they do this? And I always tell them the same thing. I know you want to know why, but you're asking for something that is senseless to make sense. And you're trying to make sense of sin, and I can't give you, you're, you're never going to have enough answers to somehow take away the sense of loss that you have. I've worked with families that have lost children. And there's a reason that so many of those marriages end in divorce because the, there becomes this natural desire to blame the other person for the loss. Some of you have a prodigal. The natural tendency is to want to blame somebody for the prodigal, even if it's yourself. We always look for other people to blame when we come to a place of tremendous loss and that could have been the end of David's story. We mourn, we weep, we blame someone, we take revenge, we write them off and we try to move on. And that would have worked except it would have left, what, 2,000 people in captivity. It would have left their wives, it would have left their families, their children, more than likely grandparents. It would have left them in the hands of the enemy. And I love what David does. First thing he did is he prayed. And I'm not trying to be super spiritual. What I'm trying to say is, is that the tendency for many of us is that when you've gone through loss and you're hurting, whether it be your own health or the health of someone else, is we try to fix it. And so we try to manage the crisis without ever stopping and inquiring of the Lord as to what to do. 
And I will just tell you that one of the hardest things to do is to stop in the middle of a loss and a crisis and say, Lord, what do I do? Uh, I don't know how many of you are, are fix-it people. How many of you are a fix-it person? You like to fix things, yeah. Hey, let me, let me ask this question. How many of you are husbands? Raise your hand. Okay. I'm looking around. How many of you husbands have ever heard the words from your wife? I don't want you to fix it. I just want you to listen to me. How many have ever heard that? Somebody right there. Man, you just went up. Robert, that was so fast. If you weren't already saved, I'd swear you just got saved. I mean, that was boom. How many of you are, are married uh, women? You're married. You're, okay. How many of you have ever said to your husband, I don't want you to fix it. I just want you to listen to me. Yeah. Okay, good. You're, you're so much more honest and aware than the, old, the, the other services are. Uh, men in here, you're with it. Because in, it, the, the, the discrepancy between women who raised their hand and the men who raised their hand was phenomenal. And I assume it's because the men weren't really listening to what their wives said when that all happened. Tammy will tell you right now, she's getting blessed because she's saying, yes, finally, she knows she has said this to me a thousand times. In fact, usually it's something like this. I don't need my pastor. I don't want my boss. I just want you to be my husband, and I want you to listen to me. She just got blessed. I think you said this to me last week. <laughs> I'm a fixer. I'm a fixer. That's what I do. Come and tell me your problems. I'll fix it. I should be Lucy on the Peanuts cartoon. I should have a little booth, 25 cents. Come to me. Fix it. And can I just tell you, there are some things you can't fix. And one of the most helpless feelings in the world is when something has been stolen that, by the way, the enemy had no claim to, had no right to. He, he had no right to it. And you feel like you've gone through loss. It is really hard to not be able to fix it. And so the next thing he did, he prayed and then he pursued. And I love it. He was not willing to allow the enemy to have something that did not belong to him. He was not allowing the enemy to keep something that they had no right to. In fact, he did his best to make sure that the enemy felt the scars. And I realize this is a 2,500-year-old story, and I realize customs change, but I don't think truths changed. And what God began to just sow into my heart is that there are some things that the enemy has stolen in the lives of people, and let's not let him lay claim to that which is not his to lay claim to. What's the enemy stolen? For some of you, the Lord, the, you feel like the enemy has stolen a, a, a relationship. It, it might be a marriage, and I get it. I understand. There are some marriages you can't put back together because you can't unscramble scrambled eggs, and they've already married another, and I get that. You can't, and you, you can't have a relationship with someone who won't have a relationship. But I'm talking about the marriage that we've just kind of, we've wept over, we've written off, and we're moving on, and it's not over. And could it be that God says, you know what, don't let the enemy lay claim to something that's not his to lay claim to. Or we've just simply, we've just acclimated to a prodigal. 
whether it be a parent or a sibling or a, or a child or, a, or, or maybe even a friendship, and we've simply acclimated to it and said, okay, well, you know what, I, I, I guess that's just the way it's going to be, and we write them off and we begin to move on with a new norm. And you know what, I don't see anywhere in Scripture that Satan has a right to your family. There is no place in here that I ever see that somehow under his authority gets to be your relationships. You show me one place, and the only way that's true is if you've acquiesced and allowed him to do it. Some of us feel like our testimony's been stolen. And maybe your testimony's been stolen because you did something just stupid. And can I just be honest with you? Even wonderful believers in Christ, people who love the Lord, they can make stupid decisions and it will impact them for the rest of their lives. But rather than simply being a place of restoration, we allow the enemy to sow this seed that even if you repent, even if you reconcile, and even if you make restitution, you'll never be used of God again. And it's like he steals our testimony, and there's a reason for it. It's because he's accusing us with false lies. By the way, if you feel that way, what's powerful in the book of Revelation, I've been reading the book of Revelation, in my devotional time, and I'm just going to encourage you, if you ever read the book of Revelation in your devotional time, balance it with the book of Psalms. I've been, I've been spending time in Revelation, then it's like i got to go to Psalms just to kind of whoosh, balance it out a little bit, you know, because if I'm looking at it, and what's interesting is that all of those who are in heaven, it says they overcame the enemy of our souls, they overcame the evil one, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their, anybody know? testimony. It's simply declaring and grabbing hold of what God promised to do in their life. And they vocalized it and they spoke it and it had a way of putting Satan in his place. Some of us have lost our joy and we just assume dark days are the norm. It's going to be the reality of my soul my song is gone. It'll never return. I'm just going to grieve it, blame somebody for it, try to get a little, recon a little bit of revenge for it, write it off and move on. But this is just going to be the reality of my life. And I'm going to tell you, I don't see anywhere in Scripture where the enemy has right to your joy, to your hope, to your future, and to your testimony. For some of you, it's a sense of purpose, and you've lost that sense of purpose, and dare I say, even a sense of call on your life. I happen to be one of those that believe every single person has a calling on their life. I don't believe the only people who are called are those who serve in a, some kind of a professional ministry. I believe God has a plan, a purpose, a design, and a calling on every person's life, and it's amazing how some of us feel like our calling has been stolen. We have some, Tammy and I have some good friends that we've just recently, in the last several years, we've reconnected with. And these were friends of ours in college when we first went to college um, years ago. Gosh, uh, when we went there, it was 1989, 88, 1988. And we met them almost immediately. And the friend, they were friends of ours for the next year and a half before they went off into another institution and then they pastored elsewhere. And we, we've always been friends, but we just kind of lost contact. And it wasn't because any hard feelings, anything like that. You know, just, that just happens, right? Well, about a couple of years ago, we just kind of got, boom, reconnected. And we just immediately started laughing again and sharing again. And we shared old stories from college. And it was just, it's been so fun. And I was talking to him, and he pastors 
times in one of our other churches, and I said to him, I said, you know, I, we really miss this. I'm, I'm so glad that we've reconnected. What happened? And he looked at me, and he said something that I had never known, and he said, Phil, we're the only ones left. He said, look back at our graduating class in college, those who were in ministry, we're the only two couples that are still in ministry today. And I thought of them, and I did. I graduated at a really small college. I mean, there weren't that many, but that's less than 10% of a graduating class. I'm just going to tell you, I believe the call of God and the gifting of God is irrevocable. And the only way that that ever gets, is if we just acquiesce. Some of you feel like you've lost your call. Lost your purpose. Lost your faith. A few weeks ago, I had a guy come up to me after a service. We had a bunch of them in December. and I don't even know if he started off looking for me, but he was in the general vicinity, and I... I saw him and I just struck up a conversation and then he began to go into a 10-minute conversation of how, how he'd been wounded and hurt and made some mistakes as a kid and there were some things that were said to him and whether they're true or not or whether they were simply felt by him but he just simply walked away and he was trying to simply rediscover something that he hadn't walked in in almost 50 years. The enemy has no right. He has no right to your family. He has no right to your testimony. He has, he has no right to your calling. He has no right to your dreams. He has no right to your purpose and God's plans in your life. He has no right to your faith. In fact, can I give you three things? And I, this may seem a little deep for the first message of the year, but I just feel like it sets the tone. I'd like you to know a couple of things about the enemy of our soul. Because I've studied this. I, I, I went on a journey and I just said, you know what, 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 exactly what does he have a right to? Well, let me just tell you this. He may have power, but the, the only power the enemy has is by permission. In fact, Job recognized that as he writes the book of Job. Satan himself recognizes he can't touch anybody without the sovereignty of God being in place. Now, you can have arguments about why and how that all happens, but here's what I know, that with the cross of Jesus Christ and the payment of Jesus' blood and by the power of the resurrection, scripturally speaking, Satan has no more authority, period. I want you to hear that because I think sometimes we buy into this idea, well, you know, as long as we're here on earth, that's kind of Satan's domain. Can I tell you something? That, that may have been true before the cross, but through the power and the blood of Jesus Christ, the enemy has actually been defeated. And he, he may have some borrowed power for a time, but Jesus says darkness can reign for an hour, but that's it. You get an hour, and even what you do have, it's only because I've allowed it to happen. 
Number two, the second thing I want you to understand about the enemy is that the enemy is real. In fact, even as I was getting ready this morning, I said, Lord, I don't in any way want to come across arrogant this morning. There, I, I've got, I come with fear and trembling. I prayed the blood of Christ over my life, my wife's life, our family's life, the church's life. I prayed over this church. I just simply said, Lord, any authority that I have today is not my authority. It is all your authority that you just simply want me to share. But I will share this. The enemy is real, but he is defeated. In fact, I love what it says in Colossians chapter 2. It says, when you were dead in your, in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. And he forgave us all of our sins. How many sins? All of them. Not just some. Not just the easy to forgive ones, even the really nasty ones. And having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. I want you to see verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made them a spectacle publicly, triumphing over them by the cross. The powers and the authorities are not the powers and the authorities, those who serve in office here. It is the heavenly forces. And he says, he has defeated them all by the power of the cross. Number, but number three, the enemy has no claim. Say no claim with me, would you? No claim. No claim over the one who has been paid for by Christ. I love what it says. Paul says at 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 7, he says, you were bought with a price. You do belong to someone, but it's not the enemy. In fact, when you've invited Jesus Christ into your life, what Scripture says what? Scripture says, to all who receive him, to all who believe in his name, which means what? I believe what he says and who he is to be true. And then I embrace him in my life and accept him to lead me. What's interesting, it says he gives all of those who receive and believe the right to be called children of God. And here's what I know. When you're God's child, you belong to him. You do not belong to the enemy. And God is not going to allow the enemy to simply take what is his. In fact, that's just like him. In the Garden of Eden, Eve and, and, and Adam both blew it and they sinned. And in chapter 3 of Genesis, it's as if God says, okay, I lost something, now I'm going to take it back. And he has spent all of eternity, all of Scripture, the entire gospel is pursuing and taking back what the enemy stole. And I wish there was a way for me to communicate the depth of the promises that I believe God is making this morning. Because for some of you, you can completely identify that you feel like something's been stolen. Whether it's from your, your family of, of faith. Maybe you don't even come to Colonial Woods, but maybe you feel like the enemy has stolen something in your family of faith. Maybe he's stolen something in your life. Maybe it's just simply a lost dream. I, I had, a, I had a, an elderly lady come up to me this last year. I was so heartbroken. She doesn't come all the time. And I, I knew that she was, her husband had been struggling. And they were very elderly. And he had had some deep health issues. And he passed away. And I went up to her and I, I put my arm around her and her son. And I just said, ah, I'm I'm so sorry. I said, I, I hate that you've gone through this. And she looked at me and she said, well, I think I've learned. 
that I'm just never going to pray again. And some of you, maybe it's not that radical or maybe it's not that pointed, but that's how you feel. Somehow, I was believing for God to do something and I, I feel like a fire's gone out. I think 2020 is the year to reclaim. It's to take back what God has promised and to lay a hold what the enemy has no right to. And I get a verse for you in Joel chapter 2. In Joel chapter 2, the people had gone through tremendous loss. And by the way, they went through tremendous loss because of their own decisions. But God makes them an offer that they come to him, and return to him, and embrace him. And he says this, Joel chapter 2, verse 25. He says, I will repay you for the years that the locusts have eaten. The great locust and the young locust, the other locusts, and the locust swarm." You're saying, what in the world does that mean? God says that that which you believe you've lost, I'm able to make you whole again. I'm able to give you hope again. I'm able to give you a future. I'm able to give you joy. I'm able to awaken what you feel has snuffed out. But you've got to come to me. Would you pray with me? Father, your word for me has just been, um, just been such a powerful tool over the years to speak into my life. Today, Lord, I'm asking that you go way beyond what was written and go to the very heart. See, I believe that we're here today for a purpose, and I believe it's a plan. And I don't believe that I'm the only person that this concept is written for. There's some that are still in shock. It just feels like they're walking in a sense of loss. Lord, I believe you're challenging us as a people to not simply allow the enemy to have what is not his, but to, to take back the authority, to take back what you've called for us to take back and to walk again in joy and victory and hope in a future. Can I just encourage you, or some of you who feel like you just kind of set aside a calling that you believe, a dream, you can call it what you want, a dream, a purpose, a, a, a calling that God has had on your life and you've laid it aside. And the Lord is saying, don't let the enemy snuff that out. Pick that up again. I think it's Romans chapter 14 says, for the calling and the gifts of the Lord are irrevocable. Some of you have just kind of wandered away. In fact, maybe this first weekend of 2020, it's just kind of your attempt to begin again. And I love it because if we're renewing a walk and a faith with Christ, it begins by taking a step. And the Lord promises us that if you'll draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. For some of you, it's to pray and intercede on behalf of a prodigal or a relationship that's grown distant. Lord, we're going to hold and believe for that which you've asked us to believe and grab hold of. Thank you, Father.
We love you today. In fact, if you fill in the blank, the enemy has stolen, you fill in the blank. As a matter of worship and as a matter of trust, Lord, we're asking for you to help us take that back again. Thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Colonial Woods Missionary Church presents Keys to Confident Living.